How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get into God's word this evening, let's uh, take a few moments for silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, evening's opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the freedom we have in this nation to continue to freely study your word, to teach your word, to proclaim the gospel, and the freedom to take your word overseas as missionaries. Father, we pray for this group leaving tomorrow. We pray that you would watch over them, keep them safe, that you would give them skill and wisdom as they uh, communicate the gospel through an interpreter to children who have never heard the gospel, may have little, if any, comprehension of who you are. And we pray that they would be able to do this uh, clearly and that the Holy Spirit would use their work, their preparation, their efforts to bring many of these children to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, now we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and pray that we would be challenged uh, with the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, 7, which is a key verse for understanding the creation of man and the foundation for understanding many things about the nature of man, the origin of the soul, and the transmission of human life. This gets into some very important, very technical questions, laying the foundation for many uh, ethical situations that, of course, face uh, many people today in our nation, many questions people have related to a number of different things that relate to the right to life. So we have to follow a strict procedure, as always, when we get into a subject like this, where there may be some controversy, some disagreement. We always have to remember that the Word of God is always the final authority in any area that we study. So we have to make sure that we understand what the Scriptures teach, exegete the Word clearly, and then use the Word to evaluate other areas. Now we're going to start in Genesis 2-7 here. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here we see that God forms the human body from the chemicals of the soil. It's very important to distinguish the fact that there are two acts of creation in this verse. There is the first act the uh, by God, Yahweh Elohim, where the emphasis is on God God is the God of Israel. In Genesis chapter 1, we find only the term Elohim, but in Genesis 2, we are introduced to Yahweh uh, for the first time, and this always would bring to mind to the Jews 
the fact that this is a reference to the covenant God of Israel who is an ethical God, who is the God who gave not only the Ten Commandments at Sinai, but he's the God who gives the singular commandment in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God formed them from the dust of the ground. Now, this is clear from Scripture that again and again this same principle is reiterated. For example, in Isaiah 43.1, But now thus says Yahweh, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, notice it's the same word, Yatsar, that is used for uh, forming man in Genesis 2.7. This is a word that portrays God as a potter. And it has to do with forming or shaping a physical object, something that is already created. Now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you and I have called you by name. You are mine. So the Jews would identify the creation of Genesis 2-7 with the, with the God who created them as a unique nation. This verb, yatser, is an important verb because it, as I said, it portrays God as a potter with clay. It indicates several things about his creative activity. He is precise. He is deliberate. He has a predetermined plan as to what the physical body of man should look like. God is not just sitting there scratching his chin thinking, hmm, Well, it seems like I did a good idea with the monkeys and chimpanzees. Maybe we can straighten that idea up a little bit, make him stand a little more upright, and we'll come up with with a body for this new creature. This is something that's predetermined. In fact, God is thinking about the fact as he is, uh, let's anthropopathize a little bit, as he's sitting there, or anthropomorphize, as he's sitting there, and he's playing with the clay. He's thinking, now, this is the body that my son will incarnate himself in. This is also the body that the Holy Spirit will indwell and make a temple for the indwelling presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is going to be designing the human body in such a way that it it will allow the second person of the Trinity, who is infinite and eternal, to become finite and localized in one body and to express all the nature of deity in this finite body, so that the physical body itself is best designed to be that instrument through which the immaterial image of God is expressed. One of the things I want to emphasize here is that too often we so emphasize the soul that we tend to de-emphasize the body, and that goes back to the old Platonic heritage that we have, that the immaterial is more important than the material. And what this is showing us is that we can't make that bifurcation or, or stress it too much, because if you do, you end up saying, well, the body's insignificant, the body's irrelevant, and, of course, the Gnostics and the uh, Docetists pushed that so far that they said that anything material was inherently evil, that which is spiritual or immaterial is inherently good. And so then that led them to denying the physical incarnation of Christ in a, in a body because that, of course, would mean that, that God would be tainted by that which was inherently sinful. So you, you, we have to maintain each in its proper perspective that the physical body is important. And I'll weave that theme in 
throughout this lesson tonight and next week. So the body is important. God is thinking about it. He has a predetermined plan, and he is consciously, deliberately, precisely creating the physical body. Now, in this first phrase, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. The dust of the ground indicates the the basic chemicals of the soil that he has made from this soil, and this is then used in many passages in the Old Testament described as clay. And this concept of clay or earthenware vessels is also carried over the New Testament. We looked at this briefly last time. Some of these passages are... Job 4.19, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust. This is talking about the human body. Job 10, verse 9, remember now that thou hast made me as clay, and wouldst thou turn me into dust again. Same word for dust, afar. Isaiah 29.6, Isaiah 45.9, woe to those who... Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. So here the, it picks up and develops that whole imagery in Isaiah 45.9 that the human being is like the clay, God is the potter. Picked up in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, where Paul talks about uh, this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, this is in complete contrast to what evolution teaches. Evolution teaches that there's this gradual process from amoeba to man, and that if they do introduce God, if someone does introduce God at some point, it's the idea that God uses evolution. And the accommodationists try to, as I pointed out last time, the accommodationist tries to develop some sort of metaphorical meaning here that from the dust of the ground is really just just sort of a um, figure of speech for saying that man started off as a in the primordial ooze and then gradually developed his way up until there was a full human being. But that view has several problems. First of all, dust is used again in this immediate context at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 19, we're told that Adam would was dust, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So whatever the process of coming up from the dust is, it's the same process in reverse. We all know what happens when the body dies. We don't go through a reverse evolution process. We don't go back through a stage of of primate and then uh, uh, mammal and then amphibian and then fish and on. We just go straight to dust. So the implication within the text, if we're going to be consistent, is that the text means that God uses the physical components of the soil to mold and shape the human body. The literal meaning here is made even more clear when we get down into the later section when we have the creation of the woman. And there 
she is taken literally from the side of the man, and this is not something that is just sort of thrown in there. You can't back off and say, well, this is just some sort of nice little uh, poetic uh, imagery here, because what that does technically in a theological sense is it shows that the human race is organically connected to the one original human created. The God creates the man. He doesn't create the male and the female separately. He creates the man, and from the man he creates the woman, so that every person in the human race is organically related to Adam. This is why Jesus Christ can then come and die as a substitute for the entire race, is because he is organically related in his humanity to every other member of the human race. If you have two distinct origins for the male and the female, then you would not have that kind of organic unity in the human race. This is one reason that there's no salvation, no savior for the angels, because each angel was an individual creation. You don't have father and mother angels producing baby angels. So there's no organic unity among the angels, and there's no no savior who can die for the sin of the angels. So the first part of the verse informs us that God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this is a very important word that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the nature and characteristic of life. See, today we come up with all kinds of definitions. How do we know someone is alive when someone has goes into a coma, when someone has a debilitating disease? And they've reached that final stage. How do we measure when life is no longer there? And we develop EKGs and EEGs and various other ways of monitoring what is going on there. And in some cases, when you, you can have a person, and, and I can't, this is just a, my experience, and you can't base it on anything more than experience. I want to make sure that's clear. But I remember a year and a half ago when my mother went to be with the Lord, she had a massive stroke about 5 in the morning and they kept her on life support and on the way to the from the intermediate hospital to the uh, emergency room of the other hospital she had a major coronary in the ambulance and they kept her hooked up to a life support that kept her heart beating and kept her breathing but I am not convinced that she was alive just because her heart was beating and just because uh, she was breathing and I have no way of basing that on anything, but um, other than the fact that you can mechanically keep the body going. But that doesn't mean, I don't think, that the soul is necessarily still, uh, still present. Anyway, we'll get into some details on that in a minute. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The Bible doesn't have access to EEGs and EKGs and all this fancy electronic monitoring system that we have today. So the description that is used in the Bible for life and the presence of life is this word, neshama. Neshama. There should be an E after that H. It's a neshama. It's a short E. This is translated the breath of life or the spark of life. So first, what God does is he creates 
the biological home, the physical material home for the soul, for the immaterial part of man. We've already studied in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that God created man in his image and according to his likeness, and that dealt with the immaterial aspect of man. So when God forms the man from the dust of the ground, he is building that earthly tent, that earthenware home, for the immaterial part of man. And so you have biological life. Now, the point that I want to raise here, the question I want to ask, is between the time that God forms the physical body and the time that God breathes into the body, which is when he would impart the soul the Im- soul and spirit, the immaterial part of man, to that human body, if you were to walk up or somebody were to walk up in between that process and decapitate the body, is that murder? See, this is where we're going to go because one of the key elements we have to... Key questions we'll answer, but not till next week, is how does all of this relate to understanding abortion? Would that be murder? The soul isn't there yet. All it is is a human body. So it's not a human being without a human soul. That doesn't, and where we're going to go with that is that does not necessarily authorize abortion. Now this is going to be some new material for some of you. It's going to be some technical material for some of you. And you may need to go over this again and again before you understand where I'm going with this. But this is not a position that some people say, well, if you believe in this position, it's a lot of, a lot of people took this position back in the 60s. It's amazing. The position I'm teaching you tonight has been the dominant view of Christianity since the early church. When Roe versus Wade came along, all of a sudden, you see, based from experience, people jumped up and said, oh, if we believe in creationism at birth, then that justifies abortion. What's the matter? Speakers aren't on. We're having a speaker problem. Um, there we go. People say that justifies abortion, but that's not true. The church has never been pro-abortion, yet that position of creationism at birth has been the dominant position throughout the history of Christianity, and that's why we're going to have to investigate what the Scripture says. But because of Roe versus Wade, you had all kinds of people, and I mean major theologians, conservative theologians, do a 180 on their interpretation of this passage simply because they thought it justified abortion. And that is absurd. That is letting experience dictate interpretation of Scripture rather than the other way around. So we're going to go through all the passages uh, in some detail to make sure we understand precisely what the Scripture says. So what we have at this point is simply this. You have the formation of the body, which is biological life, And then God breathes into the body soul life, and it isn't until you get the two united that you have full human life. So let's uh, continue to exegete the Scripture and understand precisely what it says before we get into some of these other areas of application. First of all, we need to make sure we understand the key words in this passage. We have the word for for creation here, Yatsar. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, you have both bara and asa. 
So you have the three main words for creation. We have the physical body categorized as dust, afar, and we have the breath, neshama, of life, where man becomes a living being. See, man doesn't become a living being in this in this process until God breathes the breath of life into the man. Now, here are some of the questions that we are going to have to answer as we go through this study. First of all, does God continue the same pattern? Is this just the pattern he used with, with Adam because he was the first one, or is there an ongoing pattern? Uh, when Second question, when does God impart the soul? And how does God impart the soul? Third, how has this been understood by theologians throughout the ages? We have to look at the historical background here. Fourth, how can we know when the immaterial soul is really present? Now, this is an important question. How can you know that the soul is there? That is the root question. How can you know that an immaterial soul is present? How do you measure it? Can you weigh it? Can you give its dimensions? Can you uh, put it under a microscope? How can you know that a soul is present? Does movement indicate that a soul is present? Does biological growth indicate a soul is present? After you die and your soul is clearly separate from the body, your hair and your toenails are going to grow for a long time. It takes a while for the life that is in the cell structure of your body to phase out and quit operating. So just because there's biological cell activity doesn't mean that the soul is still present, does it? So we have to look at that. Then we have to ask the question, and this is a crucial question. Few people uh, answer very well, and that is, what is the importance of the fetus and developing physical life in the womb? This goes back to the point I was making earlier. If we minimize the importance of the physical body, you minimize the answer to that question. But the Bible never minimizes the importance of the physical body. Now we'll have to see how we apply that when we get there. And then we're going to look at some difficult uh, difficult passages and answer some of the difficult questions. So we just take it step by step, verse by verse, exegesis. So God breathes into in the breath of life into the biological life, the clay, and then man becomes a living being. Biological life plus soul life then equals full human life. So what we see here in terms of an observation is that breathing seems to be a biblical definition of the presence of life. Breathing seems to be a definition of the presence of life. Let's look at Genesis 7:22. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. The breath of life, neshama. Then in Deuteronomy 20:16, only in the cities of these peoples that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, neshama. Then again in Joshua 10.40, Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, and he utterly destroyed all who breathed, Neshama, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded him. 
So, once again, just these are some representative passages of Neshama being a definition of life. The one who breathes is alive. The one who doesn't breathe is dead. Now, the second thing we see from our study of Neshama is that breath, or Neshama, is the basis for life. It is God breathing a spark of his own life into the biological life of man. Uh, Isaiah uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22 is a key passage. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be, be esteemed? So once again, man is defined in terms of neshama. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath, neshama, to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. Now, I want you to notice that breath and spirit, the last two stanzas of this, of this verse, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it, is called synonymous parallelism. Breath and spirit are synonymous. The word for spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, which often stands for the immaterial part of man. It's a, it's a generic term. It doesn't refer to the human spirit in most places. It, in some places it refers to the Holy Spirit, as it does in Genesis 1-2. It's a word that refers to wind or breath, and it, in many cases, just has a generic use for the immaterial part of man. And so here what we have is a statement that it is the Lord God who gives, and this is an active, it's a calstem verb for natan in the, in the Hebrew, and it means that God actively, which indicates to me that he is directly responsible for giving breath to the people, and that's life, the spark of life to the people who live on it and spirit to those who walk in the earth. Isaiah 57:16, God says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, ruach again, and the breath of those whom I have made, nishma, and then the creation verb, asa. So once again, we look at each of these passages, and we make certain crucial observations. First, it's clear that God makes created the biological life from the chemicals of the soil. That's indicated by the verb yatsar. Second, he is the one who imparted soul life to biological life. Third, full human life is not present until biological life and soul life are united. And fourth, the conclusion that the sign of full human life is the presence of breath, biblically. It is the presence of breath, neshema. So, what we see is that the original creation, God immediately and directly created both the human body and the human soul. This is a key terminology. It is immediate, and God directly creates both biological life and soul life. After that, he gives a command to Adam and Isha that they are to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. So God delegates the responsibility for generating biological life through the natural process of procreation. 
However, as we've seen already in uh, Isaiah 42.5, and we'll see in a number of other passages before we're done, God is still is directly providing soul life through Neshama. Neshama. Now the question is, how do we know this? How do we know that God is still directly giving physical life? Well, one line of argument is that biological life is material, and therefore it is dependent on a physical or material process of generation. That only makes sense. But the soul and spirit life is immaterial and cannot be transmitted physically. If it's immaterial, it can't be transmitted physically. And therefore, soul life or spirit life is dependent upon God, both for its creation and for uh, transmission. So this is the subject that we're going to look at. Now, one more verse is Ecclesiastes 12. Verse 7. This comes at the end of Ecclesiastes, and this is a critical verse that you should mark in your, in your text. Ecclesiastes 12.7. Then the dust, this is talking about what happens at death, at physical death. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, ruach, that is the immaterial part of man, will return to God who gave it. The dust returns to the earth. The Physical body is generated physically through procreation, and the spirit ruach is generated is produced immaterially because it's given by God, and so it returns to God who gave it. God is the one who gives for each individual soul life. Now the question that we need to answer here as we go forward is does God continue this same pattern of creation of life? By this I mean, does God have one process for generating the material part of man and another process for generating and transmitting the immaterial part of man? To understand this, we have to understand that there's been a division in church history. There are two views. There are two views in answering this question, does God continue the same pattern of the creation of life? The first view is called traducianism. This is from the Latin traducere, and that means to transfer. And this view teaches that both the material body and the immaterial soul are transmitted through physical procreation. Now, this view was first articulated in the early church by a church father by the name of Tertullian. Now, Tertullian is famous for one other thing, and that is that he is the one who coined the term Trinitas, from which we get our word Trinity. He was a very profound thinker, but Tertullian had, like most of the early church fathers, had some real gaping holes in his theology. One of the gaping holes was he was what was called a Montanist. And a Montanist were those who were followers of a man named Montanus, who came out of Asia Minor in the middle to the end part of the of the uh, second century, and he claimed that he was the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, the Montanists were the early church form of modern charismatics. They weren't necessarily speaking in tongues, but they were certainly emotional and ecstatic, and they had some problems. So Tertullian had a problem in that area, but Tertullian had another problem, 
And this is more germane to understanding his position of traditionism. And that is that Tertullian held the position that the soul was material. The soul was material. Now you see why that's important. He holds to a material transmission of the soul, but the reason he can do that is because the soul itself is physical and material. He doesn't believe in an immaterial soul. So the foundation of traditionism goes back to a man who did not believe the soul was, was, was immaterial, but was material. Now, there have been many others down through church history who have held to this position. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the one who began the Protestant Reformation, held to a tradition view, as did a middle 19th century uh, Calvinist theologian by the name of uh, W.G.T. Shedd, a very well-known writer. Shedd has an interesting comment, though, in his dogmatic theology that he was published in the middle 19th century, and that is that he recognizes that up to his point, the position that he holds of traditionism is the minority position in church history, and he states that in his systematic theology. He says this is the minority position in church history. The reason I go through this is because most people are so ignorant of church history that they, they think that a lot of stuff that's going on today is, is, is brand new. These debates have gone on throughout the ages. And then Lewis Berry Chafer, who's the founder of Dallas Seminary. Lewis Berry Chafer goes, very carefully goes through the arguments for both traditionism and creationism in his systematic theology, and he comes to the conclusion that, that the evidence can go either way but he falls out slightly on the side of traditionism. But he says, you know, he, he really had a difficult time uh, coming to a conclusion, and he lacked any real certainty or dogmatism on the point. Now, creationism, this is the position that the body is generated through physical generation, but the soul is directly created by God for each individual. The body is generated through physical procreation, but the soul is directly created by God. And historically, and I want to make this point, historically this position has always been that the soul is simultaneously created and imparted by God at the first breath. That has historically been the position. Every one of these writers that deals with creationism always deals with it from that framework. Now, who are some of the advocates of creationism? Well, among Roman Catholics, just to rattle your cage a little bit, Jerome, who was the translator of the Vulgate, which means common, uh, we, you know, the word vulgar means common. Well, Vulgate has to do with the common translation because most people spoke Latin in the 4th century still, and so he was translating the Bible from the Hebrew and Greek into Latin. He's a very famous and scholarly uh, church father. Jerome held to this position. In fact, it was the position, as far as I've been able to trace it, it was the position that was dominant before Tertullian developed the tradition position. Jerome clearly affirms a creationist position in the 4th century. Furthermore, the, uh, the angelic doctor, uh, Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas also held to creationism at birth. And here he is the great theologian for the Roman Catholic Church. And Aquinas has a statement in his great uh, magnum opus, the Summa Theologica, 
in which he says it is heresy to think that a soul can be transmitted through the semen. Now think about that a minute. He, he says it is heresy to think that the soul can be transmitted through the semen. So he rejects traditionism as heresy. Furthermore, John Calvin rejected traditionism as heresy, as did Charles Hodge, who was one of a, a family of a dynasty of tremendous theologians that resided at Princeton when Princeton was still good. There was Charles Hodge and uh, his father, A.A. A. Hodge, and Charles Hodge, and then his son, Casper Hodge. And for a 100 years, this family dominated uh, Reformed and Calvinist theology and orthodoxy. They're part of the what's considered the Princetonian theologians who basically crafted the conservative fundamentalist response to liberal theology in the 19th century. Charles Hodge was a uh, firm creationist. So there have been many different theologians on different sides of this issue, and it's important to understand that historical, that historical perspective. Well, let's go on to what the Scripture says. So what the Scripture says, we'll look at, well, before we get any further, we need to answer a question. When we get into this, we need to ask the question, when does God impart the soul? How do we know when God imparts the soul? And since Roe v. Wade in the early 70s, there have been a few uh, creationists who have tried to modify the creationist position. And there are some that come along and say, well, we, ne- we don't believe in traditionism because obviously that's heresy. So we're, we believe that God creates man, or creates the soul, and imparts it at conception. So if that's true, then we're going to find verses that emphasize the importance of conception within the parameters of life. That's what we would find if that were true. Then there's another group that tries to say, well, it's not at conception because, see, you can have a, a, an ovum fertilized by the, uh, by the sperm and not implant, and therefore, uh, and furthermore, if you have, let's say you have... Um, you have a zygote develop here, and God has one soul, and then that that zygote doubles, and then that becomes four cells, and then it becomes uh, eight cells, and then it becomes 16 cells, and then it becomes 32 cells, and then it splits. And that's when you develop identical twins. Well, did the soul split? So you've got some real problems here that I don't find too many people really interacting with in the literature because there's such an emotional thing to what's going on inside the womb. And what we have to do is think precisely and rigorously and rationally about what the Scripture says and not leap into something just because we have some sort of intuitive insight into something. So the second view is that sometime during gestation, sometime during the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, but once again, to define that scripturally, we're going to have to find that this is part of the parameters of life, from X to death. See, if conception is true, we would have statements in Scripture saying from conception to death. And then we have at the 
other end, we have those who believe that the soul is simultaneously created and imparted at birth. Okay. We have to go back to basic understanding of how we know anything in life. This is a chart that's familiar to everybody here. First of all, we have two categories of systems of perception. We have our autonomous human viewpoint systems of perception on the top, divine viewpoint systems of perception on the bottom. Remember, this applies to anything. This applies to the person who's gone out on the mission field. Someone comes along and claims to be demon-possessed or claims to know that they're able to discern if someone is demon-possessed. Somebody asked me recently, how can we tell in the church age if someone is demon-possessed? Well, the only authoritative response to that is what the Word of God says, and the Word of God gives us no criteria whatsoever for defining whether or not a person is demon-possessed. And people come along again and again and again and again and say that people like Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Ayatollah Khomeini, um, Muhammad, Stalin were all uh, demon-possessed. You know, Bill Clinton. (laughs) Just wanted to see if anybody was awake. So we have all kinds of people coming along saying that so-and-so must be demon-possessed because look at all the evil they did. But the point is that the Scripture teaches that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. And recently I heard a speaker give an illustration which speaks to this point. It was This occurred at the trial of Adolf Eichmann. For those of you who aren't old enough to remember that, Adolf Eichmann was one of the... Uh, uh, Death's head uh, Gestapo during World War II responsible for carrying out the uh, fi- Hitler's final solution against the Jews. And after the war, he managed to escape, and he went down to Argentina or Bolivia or, or uh, uh, Chile, somewhere down in South America. And it wasn't until the early 60s that the um, uh, Jewish uh, Secret Service the, um, spotted him, found out where he was. And they, the, the, the Mossad sent some agents in, and they kidnapped him, and they hauled him back to Israel, and they made him stand trial. And they, in order to protect him, they put him behind this big glass, plexiglass, bulletproof uh, cage, and they would bring witnesses in. And they brought this one man in who had been a young child during the war, and he had, um, had uh, known about Eichmann. And he had some some experience with Eichmann. He was going to witness. When he came in, he looked at Eichmann sitting there in the box, and the guy just didn't pass out, but he collapsed on the floor in, in tears. Afterward, after he gave his testimony, he came out, and the, the press was interviewing him, and the press said, why did, you, why did you collapse like that? Why did you pass out? He said, well, all my life when I was a child and I heard all the horrible stories about Eichmann in the death camps, I heard the stories from my parents, I pictured him as, as, as this horrible, ugly demon. Anyone who would, who would do these horrible, hideous things must be just the most, most ugly, horrible, misshapen, demonic person you could imagine. And when I walked in and looked at him, he looked like every man on the street. He looked like you and he looked like me. He just looked like an old man. And what I realized all of a sudden that the evil that he performed is the evil that any of us can perform. And I just, it overwhelmed me. Now that's a profound statement. See, we don't need to start running around thinking that all of this activity is, and blame it on demons. The human heart is evil enough to accomplish any of these horrible things. And you don't have to blame it on a demon. Now that doesn't mean I'm saying that they couldn't be demon-possessed. 
But the scriptures don't give us any criteria for that. Same thing that happens with the scientist who goes out and finds a fossil. He's got limited data. And so when he comes to look at something, he's going to have a certain method of knowledge. Now, the basic methods are rationalism, which starts with innate ideas and a faith in the human ability to think and to reason, and it's built on logic and reason. We've studied this many, many times. The second system is empiricism. This starts with that which is seen, observable to the senses, what you you can see, what you smell, taste, um, and touch, and this is the foundation for the scientific method, a combination or even a combination thereof of empiricism and rationalism, and it's built on the independent use of logic and reason. What I mean by independent is independent from the scriptures. Your starting point is man's innate ability to know something on the basis of sense perception or on the basis of reason. Now, the the counter to this is mysticism, where you base it on just some sort of inner private, intuitive insight. Again, it's not logical. This view is uh, mysticism. It's not logical. It's not rational. It's not verifiable. How do you know it's true? I just know it's true. I mean, how many times you run into people who say that? Don't confuse me with facts. I know it's true. I felt that I had the liver quiver. Or as the Mormons said, you know, I had the, I had the burning in my bosom. It's just subjectivism. In contrast to this, we have the Word of God, Revelation. Revelation gives us the framework for being able to utilize rationalism and empiricism and logic. It's not independent, it's dependent. So that we start with the objective revelation of God, and then we build on it through the dependent use of logic and reason. We have a great example of this, how this works in the Garden of Eden, in our passage in Genesis 2. For example, Adam is responsible for certain things in the oversight of the garden, which functions in many ways, as we'll get into this, we'll develop this idea. The garden was like a temple, and Adam and Eve, or Adam and Isha, are like the priests. And as they're placed in that, that beautiful, primordial garden, a, a perfect environment, there are many things that they were learning. Adam was naming the animals, so he's there categorizing, classifying, notating all thing, kinds of things about the various animals. And he looks at all the trees, and God says, and, and if, he, if God hadn't said anything, Adam wouldn't know crucial information about the trees. Now, he could say that the leaves are green, some leaves are dark green, some leaves are light green, some leaves are broader, some leaves are smaller. He could get out a microscope. He could go through various uh, dendrological studies and analyze the trees, and he could write tomes of information about all the trees in the garden. But unless God told them there was one tree that he couldn't eat from because if he ate it, he would die instantly, spiritual death, Adam couldn't know that from empiricism or rationalism. He could only, therefore, have a truly accurate view of the garden and the trees in the garden on the basis of revelation. If he just operated on empiricism, he would have a skewed view of reality. If he just operated on rationalism, he would, ha- he would be missing a vital and crucial element of truth. So 
what I'm saying is that there are many things that we can learn on the basis of empiricism and rationalism, but it has to be within a framework of what God's revelation has given. So when we come to asking questions about life in the womb and where, when the soul is present, when God imparts the soul, we have to make sure we start from Scripture and not from experience and not from the basis of science. We have to answer the question, how do we know when the soul is present? Is this knowledge available through either empiricism or rationalism alone? Can science measure the presence of the soul, the dimensions of the soul, the weight of the soul? Does an EEG measure the presence of the soul or simply biological electrical activity? Does biological life, that is cell life at the cellular level, necessitate the presence of the soul. Now, we have to determine the parameters from Scripture, and so to do this, we have to start with biblical words, biblical terms that are used. And the first term that we want to look at is a word that we would translate in English, birth. The word that we would translate into English, birth. Now, if I were to make the statement, she gave birth, then gave birth would be the verb. So birth itself can function as a verb, and this is the Hebrew word, yalad. Let me see if I've got this. Okay, the first word is yalad. That's the verb, but... We also have a noun form. See, if you have the phrase, from birth, where here you have a preposition, and here you have a noun, which is the object of the preposition. So birth can function as a verb, or it can function as a noun. The noun, there are the noun for birth does not exist in Hebrew. There is no noun for birth. It doesn't exist. It's not there. You can't find it. You can search all the lexicons. You can't find a noun for birth. What you find in the Hebrew is a circumlocution or a, an idiom to express the concept of birth, and that is the word mibetan. The first point I'm putting up on the overhead, the birth is a noun, is usually used with a preposition. There's no noun for birth in Hebrew. Thus, when you have to express the prepositional phrase from birth, you use the phrase me betten. Me, that those first two letters, is a uh, shortened form of the Hebrew preposition men, which means from. And betten is the, ver is the noun for womb. It means from the womb. Sometimes you have the phrase babetan, and the be is the Hebrew preposition ba or in, in the womb. Now there's a crucial difference between in the womb and from the, room, from the womb, and this is based on the meaning of the Hebrew preposition men, which has the idea, especially when it is used for, for words of, of, of action or words of coming or, or going, it has to do with what takes place outside of the womb. 
If you're talking about what's going on in the womb, then you have the preposition but. If you have it outside the womb, you have the preposition men. This is the same argument that I use for demon possession. You never have the preposition but in the Hebrew. When you have the demons come on Saul, it's al or they come to Saul, preposition ale, but you never have them coming in Saul, the preposition but, which is the idea you have for demon possession in the New Testament. So these prepositions are very important to understand the concept. So if you're going to talk about what's happened since birth, you used either the phrase mebeten from the womb or a synonym, rachem, mirachem, which is from the from the womb as well, or from the from the bowels, Psalm, and they're both used in verses such as Psalm 22:10 and Psalm 58:4. Now, this is some verses that where we find this phraseology. In Job 1:21, he said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." And in those first two lines, he's talking about Death, I shall return naked. I, I come with nothing, I go with nothing. You, you can't take it with you. You, you. you arrive in this world naked, and you take it with you. So two points. He, he's talking about coming from the mother's womb. That's outside the womb. But notice the parameters for life here are from the womb and to death. We'll come back to that later. Job 3.11. Why did I not die at birth when I was born, literally? Come forth from the womb, me betten, and expire. So, see, he's talking he, in his depression. He's saying, why did, wasn't I just born and die? He doesn't say, why didn't I die in the womb? He said, why didn't I just come forth from the womb and then die? Because, see, he understands that it, he's, the soul's not present in the womb. If the soul were present in the womb, he would have said, why didn't I just die in the womb? But there wasn't an eye to die in the womb. There was just physical life. He recognizes he had to be born before he was fully there. Job 10.9, I should have been as though I had not been, carried from womb, me betten, to tomb. Psalm 22.9, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. That's out from the womb. See, we have to understand this. In English, we're so sloppy in our understanding of prepositions that often you'll look in any grammar book and they'll just find prepositions. They'll usually use a circle here and they'll put a dot like that and then this would be the preposition uh, ba or in Hebrew it would be the preposition in, E-N. In English, they would, we would use the preposition in. Then you would use the preposition from and in all the grammars, when you have this diagrammed, you have the Greek ek or you have um, the Hebrew men, M-I-N, they're all diagrammed like this. The starting point of the arrow is never inside the circle. It's outside the circle, indicating separation. This is one of the key ideas present in the prepositions of both men and ek, as we'll see in the New Testament, for from the womb. Then we have, let's look. go back, look at another verse. Psalm 22.10, Upon you I was cast from birth, me betten. You have been my God from my mother's womb, me rachem. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb, me betten. 
Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Mirachim, those are used in parallelism. Isaiah 44.2, that says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, out from the womb, who will help you. So again and again and again, we find this terminology of from the womb. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. Mibetan. The point that I am making here is that every time you have the starting point in the Scriptures, he, those, the writers have to use this, this term in, the, in Hebrew, mibetan, or mirachim. That's the starting point. Now, the other word that is used for verb, the, the birth as a verb is yalad. Yalad. And that looks like this. It's Y-A-L-A-D. And this is the verb. It's used 388 times in the Old Testament, and it is used of giving birth. One place that you see, see it used is, just turn over a page in your Bible because you're probably still on Genesis 2. Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, or bore Cain, depending on your translation. The word for gave birth to or bore is our word yalad, and it indicates the end of the process. Now, there's another important word there in Genesis 4.1, and that is the verb conceived. She conceived. Now, this is the other, the other word. I so say we're going to look at two words. First is birth. Birth has a verb, yalad, and it has a noun, uh, but that, and it has no noun, so they have to use an idiom, mebetan. Now, we have to look at conceive the same way. See, for conception, there's a verb. To conceive is the verb hara. It's used 52 times in the Old Testament. The vast majority of those in the same kind of construction you have in Genesis 4.1. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth. You have this phrase at least 10 times in Genesis talks about Sarah conceived and gave birth. Uh, Hagar conceived and gave birth. Uh, Rachel conceived and gave birth. Rebecca conceived and gave birth. And uh, the wives of Jacob continuously were conceiving and giving birth to have uh, 13 children. So this is a standard phrase, but it doesn't tell us anything about whether conception brings soul life. It just said talking about the physical life when the ovum is fertilized and conception takes place. Now there is also a noun for conception, and this is the word hara or haria. This is the verb. Notice that vowel pointing is going to be different. Haria. Let me see. Haria or just you have the same basic consonants, it's just that the vowel points change. Hare and Haria is the. Um, this is the noun. This is the noun for conception. So you have a verb to conceive. And you have a perfectly good noun that is used numerous times in the Old Testament for conception. 
Now, why is the noun important? Because if you're going to set up parameters for life, and you're going to say life is from conception to death, you can say, you can say, me, hare. You have a perfectly sound and used Hebrew word for conception. It's never used in that kind of a context. It's all only used in the concept she conceived and gave birth. But as we're going to see, when the Bible verses talk about the parameters of life, it is always from the womb, from birth to death, from birth to death, from birth to death. You never, they have a legitimate word for conception. If life begins at conception... Why don't the writers, the inspired writers of Scripture, ever use that terminology? But they never, ever do. Let's look at some of these uh, other verses. Uh, Skipping back to, where am I? Okay, a couple of verses, just go back, look at the noun form. Man who is born of woman, Job 14.1, Job 15.14. What is man that she should be pure, or he who is born of a woman? Notice that's the starting point, who is born of a woman. Job 38.21, you know for you were born then, and the number of your days, the number of your days is great. Uh, Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. See, it's from the womb to death. Uh, Job 3.11, come forth from the womb and expire, from the womb to death. Job 10.18, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died. So these are the parameters, from the womb to death. Uh, Carried from womb to tomb, Job 10.19. When you get into some other passages, for example, in Ecclesiastes 3.2, which we looked at earlier. Uh, no, not 3.2. We looked at 12.7. Ecclesiastes 3.2 says a time to give birth and a time to die. Notice the parameters are birth to death. Isaiah 9.6, a child will be born to us. It's not The Bible doesn't emphasize the virgin conception. There had to be a virgin conception. But... It emphasizes virgin birth because the starting point of the Savior's life was birth, not, not conception. Uh, Matthew 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. It's never, this word conception is in the vocabulary. It's available, but it's never used. So if we're going to say that life goes from conception to death, full human life that is, then we have to be able to document that from the Scripture. No verse anywhere gives the parameters of life as conception to death. In the New Testament, or in Greek rather, we have as a parallel to this, we have the phrase either ek, koilea, koilea is the word for for womb, k-o-i-l-i-a, out from the womb, and that was used to translate mebetan in the Old Testament. And then you also had the phrase ek gastros. You can figure out what that means from our simple etymology, g-a-s-t-r-o-s. And this was parallel to, uh, was usually a translation for mirachim. And then you also have the use of the phrase 
in gastros. Now, in gastros is talking about the child that was in the womb, or the human life that was in the womb, excuse me, the biological life that is in the womb. And this phrase is only used one time, but it's clear that it's just talking about what is taking place inside the womb in the development of physical or a biological life inside the womb. So that's as far as I want to get on go on this tonight. Next week I want to come back. We're going to look at the New Testament passages that relate to this specifically in John 3 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And then we're going to come back and look at the question of the importance that the Bible places on fetal development and life inside the womb, looking at some crucial passages such as Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 1.5. And then we'll come back and start asking and answering some of the crucial questions that relate to current day ethics and legal matters with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to get into these details. We know that sometimes this is difficult to understand, and depending on background, it may be difficult to to work our way through this material the first time, but we have to rely upon your word, walk by faith and not by sight, putting our emphasis on what your word says and not on uh, opinion, not on experience, not on feelings. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to be willing to let our thinking be renovated by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.